Welcome to Scrum Dynamics episode 21. The mission of this podcast is to help every Microsoft partner and customer save time and money and have more fun while implementing Dynamics 365 using the Scrum framework successfully. I'm your host, Neil Benson, and in this episode, I'm joined by Mark Christie. Mark is a senior consultant with EBEX in their Glasgow office. He's from Perth in Scotland, and he's one of the powers behind Dynamics 365 Saturday in Scotland. It's coming up on Friday the 25th and Saturday the 26th of January. Find out in this episode the special entrance that the speakers are going to make in the Strathclyde University Conference Centre. You can register for that event at 365saturday.com. Fun fact I found out about Mark after we recorded the podcast is that Mark listens to podcasts while swimming in a pool. So Mark, if you're listening to this one, Mark's a big fan of Azure DevOps, formerly known as Visual Studio Online, and he uses that to manage his Scrum projects. So I'm grateful to Mark for coming on and sharing his expertise. We chat about forecasting features, managing your product and sprint backlogs, wikis and dashboards. And finally, stick around to the end of this episode and you can find out how much Mark will pay for a Scottish one-pound note. That's right, Mark doesn't pay a pound for one-pound notes. But just before we get into the interview with Mark, here's a message from our sponsor. Mapletics Bionogic is a market-leading, certified for Dynamics 365 geo-analytical mapping app. Mapletics empowers users with powerful map visualization and writing capabilities within Dynamics 365 to better drive sales, improve business processes, and engage the right customers at the right time. Mapletics now works with Dynamics 365 version 9 and the Dynamics 365 app for mobile and tablet devices. Enogic is a leading gold-certified Microsoft ISV delivering best-in-class Dynamics 365 solutions, as well as high-quality and cost-effective programming services. Mapletics is one of the ISVs featured on my recent periodic table of the elements for the Dynamics 365 customer engagement ecosystem. You can download that periodic table and find 118 apps and sites that make up our ecosystem. Visit customerly.com slash elements. That's the word customer with a Y on the end, dot com slash elements. Now, let's get into episode 21. Mark Christie, welcome to the Scrum Dynamics Show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. Mark, I originally reached out to you because I saw you post, uh, I can't remember what project it was, but it was a screenshot of Visual Studio Team Services with a Scrum project inside it. And I thought, Mark's using Visual Studio. Our, our audience really wants to know about how to use Visual Studio in their Scrum projects when they're running Dynamics 365. So welcome to the show. I hope you can tell us all about it. But before we do that, I just wonder if you could introduce yourself for the Scrum Dynamics audience and tell us a little bit about your background in Scrum and in Dynamics as well. Yeah, so I've been working in Dynamics for about 10 years now with a few different UK partners. I mainly focus within field service. So as you can imagine, a lot of these field service projects aren't just 5, 10, 15 day projects. They're a couple of hundred days, some even going into thousands. So we needed a tool that was able to manage multiple users, multiple sprints, and just have lots of collaborative working between ourselves and different customers. And VSTS or DevOps, I'm going to get in so much trouble because I'm going to keep going to call it VSTS. 
But DevOps um, has a tool because we can have the developers in, we can have the PMs in, we can have the customers raising issues and bugs. So um, it's something I've used in a couple of different places. And now that I'm with eBex, we're using it on a bigger scale. And it's something that we are looking to implement fully internally quite soon as well. Well, Mark, before we get too much into, I was going to ask you about the, the name change, but before we get into the new naming, you're, you're best in Scotland. I see you're heavily involved in the Dynamics 365 Saturday event coming up in January. I am, yes. So I'm about an hour north of both Glasgow and Edinburgh, so uh, I can get to pretty much any airport within the hour, so it's quite nice. Whereabouts do you live? I used to, that sounds like you must be in Stirling, somewhere near there. I'm about 20 miles, so I'm in a place called Perth. Well, oh I'm, yeah, okay. I'm cool. actually just a little bit further north than Perth, but that's probably the, the nearest actual city that somebody will recognise the name of. Ancient capital of Scotland. They used to have the the um, the, the scone there, right? Yep, that's exactly. It. There's not a lot of people. That's usually my bit of information to tell people. But <laughs> no. yeah, it was um, the historical capital of Scotland, and we had rulers used to live here, and we had Scone Palace, or we still do have Scone yeah. Palace, and the Stone yeah. of Scone, which I think was stolen and then handed back. Quite recently. Uh, good. I had um, Nick Dolman, one of the Canadian MVPs. He's going to be coming over to the UK for the Dynamics 365 Saturday events. He was wondering if he should spend uh, the Friday, the 25th of January in London or in, in Glasgow. I was like, mate, you've got to go to Glasgow. It's Burns Night. And uh, exactly. he hasn't got a clue what that was. Can, can you maybe enlighten Nick and, and other um, Canadians about Burns Night for us, please? Burns Night is something that is a tradition that we have in here, have up here where we celebrate Rabbi Burns. We toast the haggis, we pipe the haggis in. So, I mean, a kind of good intro with the D365 event we're having. Um, normally when we have a haggis, we have a big meal, we have lots of people there. Um, there will be pipers who will actually pipe the haggis in. So you have a piper at the front, you'll have your chef for the evening will actually carry the haggis in. And then you'll present the haggis and you'll have somebody toast the haggis as well. So, I mean, it's yeah. quite a thing that happens all year. So we're doing it a little bit differently at the D365 Saturday event. We're actually going to have our, our main speakers will all be piped in like haggises. Oh, <laughs> fantastic. And so are you going to be presenting at that event? Well, that's still to be determined at the moment. I am running a field service session the day before in Microsoft in Edinburgh with Ben. But it started off, it was just going to be two rooms. Then we had so much interest from people and then from speakers. We've expanded to four rooms. And at this moment, I've taken myself off the actual speaking bill and we have everyone else full. So I'm there as a backup, but I think there's going to be lots for me to do on the day. Good. I'm really thrilled that the Dynamics C65 community in Scotland's taken off. So thanks very much for your contribution there and, and, and running it and being being so involved. That's awesome. We've got the head of Microsoft Scotland coming to give the keynote speech. So there's a lot of interest. Wow. There's people flying from all over to get to it. So it's going to be a big calendar event, that one. So that, thanks, Mark. It's great, great to get to know you a little bit better. But coming back to the topic at hand, we're going to talk about, about Scrum and about what used to be called Visual Studio Team Services. It's now called Azure DevOps. What's your take on the change in name? Is it is it just putting some new lipstick on it, or is there actually an overhaul of the of the product that's worthwhile changing the name for? At the moment, so from my lookings at it, there's there's three different areas that it's going to be hitting now. So you're going to have your DevOps, which is your VSTS side of things where you've got your Kanban boards and you have everything there where you can set it all up. But they're also bringing in some of the dev services and 
not official at the moment, but it looks like some GitHub information or connections are going to be there to, to allow you to store information yep. there as well. So it's definitely the way forward. I think if you're an ISV or if you're a, a partner, it's definitely the place that you should be going if you're doing code and you're doing decent-sized projects. Yeah, I have to admit, the um, a couple of big projects I've been involved in over the last couple of years, it's a, obviously a Microsoft Dynamics 365 project, but it's been with customers who, for whom this is probably their first big Microsoft project, so they don't have most of the Microsoft tools, and they're not a big Visual Studio shop, they, they weren't running uh, Visual Studio team services, and I've had the position that I've been in, I've been using the Atlassian tool set, so things like Jira uh, yep. as, a, as an alternative to VSTS, so my experience of using it's now Azure DevOps, I really love the new UI, and it's got a couple of really cool features that, that I haven't seen in Jira. One of them is the forecasting feature, where I can build up a backlog of user stories. I can estimate them all in terms of story points. I can set up my team velocity, and then a Visual Studio, <laughs> Azure DevOps <laughs> will then help me forecast how many sprints it's going to take, and therefore how long my project's going to take overall. Have you used that forecasting feature much? We've not at the moment so this project that I'm in at the moment I've been on now for about eight months right. that functionality wasn't fully available at the time and um, so <laughs> all the forecasting trying to work out how many tasks there are how many stories there are what features are going to be in once what sprint was actually done quite manually so we were going right. in assigning story points then sorting by what was the the highest on the board and then putting them into to reasonable sprints based on what features or epics that we wanted to, to kind of cover off. So are there a couple of favorite features that you really enjoy using? For me, it's the report. I've, you've, the reason that you've seen the, the original Visio diagram is because I love doing Visio diagrams and I love doing dashboards. So the ability yep. to create dashboards and lists, nice colors planted everywhere, it's just a good visual representation of what's there. Because if you've got people who are maybe customer customers who are testing, they're, they don't want to get into, oh, this is a big program. Because, I mean, DevOps is a huge platform that you can use. They don't want to have to learn a whole product just to know how they want to test something looking at their test story. So we yeah. can set up views. We can set up test scripts on there just so that they've got easy access they can get what they want, they can get in there quickly, and they can see what's to be done next, or they can see a bug that they've raised, they can see who it's sitting with and what the updates are on it. So for me, that is fantastic, just being able to have that right there for them, right in front of them, it's unreal. So can we just touch on the, on the licensing there a little bit? My understanding is that Azure DevOps is... Um, at no charge if you have a Visual Studio subscription. But if you're uh, like one of your customers and you're maybe a, a business analyst or uh, some kind of power user and you want them to do some testing, what kind of license do they need in order to use Azure DevOps for that? So for the DevOps, you will get five licenses free and right. then any license above that, then they have to purchase. So there are two ways of doing it. Um, and it really depends on the size of the customer, how big their project team is. Um, you can have, so we have an internal VSTS where we run all our projects from and then give people who need access. So whether it be the project manager, the BA on their side and a couple of testers, yep. um, we can give them access to our system or if they want to run it because they are, I mean, you find some of the bigger companies, they've already got a tool internally that they'll use. So they have purchased the licenses already. They've got it there. They'll just create a new project. 
So it, right. it really depends on which side of it. But out of the box, you will get five licenses for your users. But if somebody has their own personal license, so I have an MSDN subscription, and that MSDN yep. subscription gives me license for that, so I can then log in if the customer adds me with that email address. Okay, so you can bring your own license to Visual yes. Studio Team Services. And uh, you mentioned there the on-premise deployment. I, many years ago, I did use Team Foundation Services. That was an on-premise deployment that my customer already had. And it, like you said, they just set us up with a new project. Can you do the same with Azure DevOps? Is there still an on-premise deployment option? Not that I'm aware of. I think we're all online for this now. Okay. Double, I'm going to double check that one, but I'm pretty sure that it's all online now. It definitely, since I've been using it recently, it's been... It's been online. I mean, I remember going back to, what was it, VSS4, Visual Source Safe wow. 4 for the code. Yeah. That, that was my first ever introduction to any sort of source control stroke management of projects. It was <laughs> in the good old Great Plains days. Tell me about managing the backlog in Azure DevOps. There's different templates, first of all. So you can say, I'm going to be running a Scrum project or a Kanban project or some other type of project, and it sets up some things in the background for you. Sticking with the Scrum template, then it seems like you have epics, features, and user stories in the backlog. Is that right? Yeah, so that's, and you also have your tasks as well. So tasks below that, yeah. What I would normally do is, if you're thinking CRM style, if you're thinking, right, okay, just out-of-the-box things for simplicity. Sales, customer service, field service, and project, they could be your features or your epics because that's yep. they're, the, they're the big-ticket items. So we're breaking it down into what area of the system is it going into. We would then have multiple different user stories sitting within each feature. So it could yep. be, it could be the, it's the simple things. When I create a case, I want it to have a pink sparkly light, I want it to do this. I want it to do that. So you then start to build up your different user stories. You can estimate against them. You can then start saying, right, okay, I've looked at this user story. I'm going to have to break that out into several different tasks. So the way I would take that is you can do this in different ways. It's really how you set it up yourself and how you want to work it. But when we break it down to task level, we have a config task, which is for doing the, the actual of task itself. We have a design task. Yep. We have a development task. And we also have a recording task or a playback task where we would actually record what we've done or document what we've done so that we can hand it over to the next right. stage. Okay. So I have to admit, I um, haven't used tasks in quite a while. In fact, it was that Team Foundation service project in 2013-2014 where we were using tasks and a little bit like you were mentioning we we found that there was the same four or five tasks for every user story there was a, an analysis task there's a development a design task a development task and a testing task like oh this is a little bit of a mini waterfall for every user story and we, they weren't getting an awful of value out of task management and, and we abandoned them we just went back to using user stories right instead of moving the tasks progressing those from left to right across our our, our board yep. we just moved the entire user story from not done to done across our board and i haven't used tasks since then do you find that breaking down things into tasks and tracking those and estimating those is a useful piece of work to do yeah i do i mean one problem i've got is i like to customize everything it's it's just a habit Even in crm i customize it so you can customize your boards so that you move them into yep. different sections. So you can move them into four or five different areas. But one of the main reasons that we went down to doing it at task level 
we, when you're on a project with six or seven people, you may have somebody who's a solution architect who's only doing the design. Right. You may have somebody who's just doing the build. Your developers doing the dev. You have a separate dev who's doing the integration part of it. So these, this is where the different tasks are actually quite good because you can see there's predecessors for that task. So I can't start doing my dev on the integration until the fields have been put on the form. So you can start yep. to then put it down down that way. Um, you could lift that up, as you say, to the user story level, but I think there then isn't the, the intermediate between the, the top level and the user story for that. So I think tasks is kind of a good level to, to start distributing things rather than user stories. Yeah, okay. Well, that's, uh, I'm glad you're finding them useful. Like I said, we found that the overhead wasn't worth it. Uh, are you then estimating the number of ideal hours or, or something for the, the task to be complete? Depending on the project. And it also depends on how we break it down to start with. So if we're doing the design up front, we'll have done a little bit of analysis. So we'll know each user story is roughly this size. So even if you do it based on small, medium, and large, you can throw yeah. it into a bucket where you know it is. And then when you get down to doing the actual tasks themselves, you can put time on it. Or if you're doing sprint planning. So sometimes when we're doing this, these sort of visions, we will break it down into 10 different sprints. And towards the end, so if you're on sprint one, towards the end of sprint one, we will then start to do the planning for sprint two. So we will look yeah. at what's not been designed, give it a time, say we know it's gone. So we know that a large is 10 to 15 hours. So let's then break out the 10 to 15 hours that are on the user story and distribute that through all of the tasks. Right. So, so we start to get the idea of how big each one's going to be that way. Yeah, good. Okay. Well, that seems to be a, a good compromise and it doesn't get you bogged down and having to do very granular estimates for every task and, and track your time too much. Yeah, it's good because you can also roll up some of that information to the user stories as well. So it yep. does. Um, but when we are going back to the customer, we will say, here's the user story complete rather than we've done all of these tasks. So we're still presenting the user story from an end-to-end -end yeah. process. But as I say, there could be 10, 15 different tasks under that, that one story. Right. So, so your customer cares about things being complete at a user story level. You're tracking your tasks as a, as a team in order to know how complete you are, but you're really just reporting at that higher up user story Correct. level. Yeah. Uh, I'm used to a Jira, which has an epic with a number of user stories underneath it. Yep. Azure DevOps has got this intermediate type of backlog item called a feature in between epics and user stories. And I guess it's just up to each team how they you know use each one of those levels in the backlog. So like you said, your your epic might be sales or customer service, a really, really big app, you know, CRM application on its own. The, the project I uh, have outlined here is an epic could be work orders. A feature is create a new work order. The user stories are things like the work order lifecycle, creating a work order, adding service tasks, adding products, and, and those kinds of stories underneath that. Yeah, I mean, I've yeah. found with the projects I've been working on, they've been cross-platform. So there has been CE, there's been ops, there's been talent, and right. there can also be scribe work as well. So those are really the higher level ones. So that's yeah. what I, okay. I would have right at the very top. And then we would then break it down underneath that to its sales, its marketing, its customer service, and then break down 
what you want to do that. But the one good thing with DevOps is, I mean, as I alluded to, I like customizing things. You can customize it. So if you want sure. to run a user story, band certain stories as a different area, or not even a different area, just with a different grouping, you can do that. Or one thing that is awesome on it as well that I should have touched on earlier when on features is actually the ability to just put a hashtag in. You can tag oh, different okay. items. So what I can do is I can create a tag, call it Sprint for Review, Sprint for Unknowns, and then I can just bring all of them up at once by using my filter criteria. And I can have everything there and look at things that need to be reviewed. I've used labels quite a lot um, yep. in Jira, and I'm pretty sure Azure DevOps has got a similar feature, but if you could just use the hashtag anywhere, that's awesome. Really yeah. helps, helps, you know, and you can do, there. Yeah, you can do it on anything. You can do it on a feature, an epic, a story, or a task. So if you, yep. if you maybe want to tag a story and the task to review them both together, it's easy enough to do that. So one of the things I've used those for in the past is, Typically, a user story where I write a user story as a user role, I can do something so that I can achieve some goal. And when I'm, I'm writing user stories in that format, sometimes there's another type of user role who can also benefit from that feature. As a dispatcher, I can create a work order so that I can schedule resources. But it might be that the field technician can also create a work order. And I don't want to write as a dispatcher or a field technician, I can create a work order so that I can schedule resources. The, the stories become a little bit clumsy if I need to put all those user rules into the into the story description. So I can't often just use tags or labels for that. So I can have three or four user roles as tags on my story, and now I can just go and find all the stories with the tag dispatcher, and whether or not the dispatcher is the main actor or a secondary actor, I've got those that collection of stories pulled together. So. Recently, we've been working on a project on field service and there's been mobile device work, so the field service yep. application. And as we're going through the stories, we didn't know up front on the project which part of the stories would include the mobile device. So as yep. you see, as, as a dispatcher, I need to be able to do this, that, and my outcome should be this. But what we've also found is the, the end part of their story is, and then it goes to the person's mobile so right. we've had to really go back and tag some of these with a mobile device so that we can okay. go back and bring everything. So I've used tags and labels in other projects to indicate where, like you said, where custom development's required as opposed to configuration work or where integration work is required as well. So we can quite easily flag those, uh, group them together and review them as a, as a team. Thinking about the different states that a user story can move through in its life cycle, do you have any preferences when it comes to the different states as to how many there are or what the names are and, and how, how as a team you agree when a story is ready to move from one state into another? Yeah, so what we normally do with a story is you would have your either ready for design or designed. That would be your, yeah. first, your first two stages. We would then have build started, build and review, testing internally, and then once it's tested internally, we would set it ready for customer testing. That's generally what we would use. But that, again, because it's so customizable, we can change that per customer if they need certain things put in there because there are certain milestones that they need to hit or they want to see if it is a, I mean, as, as, as a normal sprint can be two to three weeks. If it is a large user story, they maybe want a slightly more refined 
process where they can see, right, you're at 25% or or you're at the initial build that's gone to development. There are a few more, but those are the, the main ones that you'd really start with. And that way you can just pull them across the board once you've done that area of it. We have similar stages in my current project. We have ready, which means the story has been refined. It's estimated. It's ready to start development. Then in progress, then we have in testing. So one of our team is, you know, specializes in, in quality assurance. They're testing it. Then we have a PO review. So our product owner gets to see it. Um, and then we have done. So okay. by the time it gets to done, we make sure it's, the unit tests are there. There's documentation. The, the QA is happy with it and the product owner is happy with it. Um, and sometimes we have a, an informal product owner review just after the development is complete, but before we've tested it, you know, and we just want to get some feedback as to the layout of a form, that kind of stuff as well. We don't have a formal stage for that. We just, you know, wander up to the product owner and say, hey, look, this, how do you like the layout? You know, this is almost done. We're ready to start testing it. Can you give us a quick bit of feedback? And that way we can incorporate any last minute because you know what it's like as a product owner. You, yeah. you don't always know exactly what you want until you see it. And then it's exactly. much easier to go, no, that's not quite what I wanted. Can you make these changes? We also have different meetings that we'll have throughout the project or throughout each sprint. So what we can actually do is we can start off with, at the start of the project, we would have our design review and then our sprint, sprint planning. Um, towards the end of the sprint, you can then have your playback session and your sprint review session. So that way, you're playing it back to the customer. They're having a look at it. As you say, if there is anything that's different, then we can change that in the sprint review. So there's a few yeah. different areas that we can do that. But when you're talking a little bit there about the testing side of things, um, DevOps does have an entity or a, a record for testing. So what we can do, um, there's, there are two totally different trains of thought on this, but you can test a user story, but you can also test a task. Right. When you were saying that you were setting it for testing and then for customer testing, what we would do is that user story would be ready for testing and then the customer would then come in and create their test plan and their test script against that user story, complete that test script or test plan and then close the story as complete and delivered. Okay, that seems like a good way to do it. I've never tested at the task level, but yeah, the uh, creating a test plan or a test case against a user story is normally where I'm at. So the reason I go down the testing on the task is for internal testing. You don't want, one, you don't want to give the customer something that isn't fully complete or has something missing. I'm a nightmare for spelling mistakes, so nine times out of ten, it's a spelling mistake. You want to test your individual components. So if I've built something, the dev's built something, and the integration dev has built something, we want to check them in isolation as part of the unit testing, but we also just want to test to say, right, I've tested somebody else's work to make sure that works before we do an, into, an internal end-to-end -end user story test to then give it to the customer. So I, I, I like the way the testing runs around these. But earlier on, you mentioned there can be lots of different statuses and there can be lots of tasks. You can imagine if there's lots of tasks, there's then lots of tests associated with them. So it can become quite cloudy. You mentioned doing a peer review. That, that's one of our definitions of done at the moment is you have to show your feature to another developer in the team um, as much to get feedback and make sure you're following best practices, but it also spreads the knowledge around in the team about the different features. And what we don't want is, hey, Mark's gone off on holiday and we're not able to work on that part of the system until he gets back. We don't want that kind of dependency. So we find that the peer review helps improve the quality of our work and just spreads that knowledge around as well. 
Yeah, it does. It does help that. There's also the function where you can tag somebody in. So like a, just a, a note, you can tag somebody, put their username in, and just put a few short, sharp bursts off of what they're doing. The only reason I'm saying that, I am just back from holiday yesterday, and I had to do that two weeks ago before I went on holiday. It was just any tasks or stories that were assigned to me, just a sharp burst with whoever needed to pick up any additional information on that. One of the new features, or reasonably new, I think, is the ability to create a wiki alongside your DevOps project. Confluence is the wiki that sits beside the Atlassian Jira suite. It's, it's pretty good, and there's some reasonable integration between Confluence and Jira. Have you used the Azure DevOps wikis much? Because it's really nice to have a, a place where all your documentation lives, where you can maintain system documentation or user documentation, that kind of stuff. We have been using that. What we've also done, because this is the our customer that I'm working on at the moment, this is their first time using the product. We've also tailored the wiki to show them the processes within VSTS. That was um, Richard Harding, one of our other consultants. That was his idea, and I think it's, it's fantastic. So what it does, it's, the customer can log in. They don't want to learn the whole system. They only need to learn what they're doing. So they can go to the wiki, and it's got links to how to create a test case, how to update the statuses on it how to do everything that's quite good on that front. Uploading the document, any designs. What we tend to do, though, for any documentation that we're doing, if it's relevant to a user story, we attach it to that user story. Yeah, yeah I tend to do the same. Or if it's an epic kind of feature. So, again, just so people aren't jumping around through lots of different areas, we try and keep it in one story. If somebody comes on the project to look at one story for two weeks, it's attached to that user story itself, and they can find all the information on that one. Yeah, so if I was doing a little screenshot, whether it's a wireframe or I captured some notes on a whiteboard about a user story, yeah. I, I'd do exactly that. Just atta- attach it to the user story. But towards the end of each sprint, we're using the snapshot for Dynamics 365 to generate the system documentation. It's got a complete data dictionary. It gets exported into Excel. So we'll publish that somewhere, typically in, in a SharePoint site, and then just update a wiki with a link to the latest version of that spreadsheet so that if anybody, particularly our integration and data migration teams, they want to see if there's been any changes to the data dictionary, they can go and find the latest version. They just look in the wiki and the link is there. It's off they go. I am making a note of that one right now because that's what I'm looking at. <laughs> so it's going to cost you a dollar for that tip. I'm sure we'll sort something out, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> do you still have point notes in Scotland? Well, do you know what? I'll, an interesting story. I bought one on eBay two weeks ago. <laughs> no um, how much, how so, much did you have to pay for a pound note? Uh, one pound twenty-five. Oh, okay. That's so, markup's not too bad. Um, one of my friends was Ian Connolly, and yeah. Ian produced one of these notes the other day, and I thought, Do you know what? I'm going to find one and put it in a frame. So I ordered one, and it arrived. It's absolutely crisp. I then went to order really? another one, and they told me because I'd already ordered one. I could get another one for the same price, or I could get one in the same sequence, and it was going to cost me about £400. So if you have the the serial numbers in sequence. So it must be a thing. People must be collecting them. But yes, right in my hand at the moment, you can hear it flapping. It's a crisp (laughs) one. That's uh, one of the things I I find very curious. I grew up in, in Northern Ireland. I lived in Scotland for a long time, and then in England. In America, there's only one bank, the Federal Reserve Bank, they print all the banknotes. In Australia, it's the Australian Reserve Bank, they print all the banknotes. In England, it's the Bank of England, they print all the Bank of England notes. In Scotland, I think there's four or five banks that are licensed to print their own currency. And in Northern Ireland, which is a country, I don't know, about a million people in Northern Ireland, 
they have again four or five banks that can print their own banknotes and it's nuts you know you've got a five pound note or a ten pound note and it looks different depending on whether it's Royal Bank of Scotland Bank of Scotland uh, Clydesdale Bank yeah. it's, it is a strange one I have to look at some of the notes myself at times just to make sure it is the right one because you, you're used to the pictures and the faces on them and you pull it out and you think yeah. wait 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 that doesn't look oh no it is it's fine I mean as long as it says sterling on it I'm arguing that it's getting spent regardless <laughs> yeah, I'm the same. Mark, it's been a real pleasure. I really enjoyed learning lots about uh, Azure DevOps today, so I really appreciate you coming on the show. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to reach out to Mark Christie? The Mark Christie. Yeah, that's my handle for pretty much everything. So if it's YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, or themarkchristie.co.uk, you'll find either blogs from me or YouTube videos or podcast episodes or live in person at dynamics 365 saturday yes on the 25th on the friday microsoft edinburgh the 26th at sterling university hopefully at the start or middle of february you'll be able to see us at crm ug scotland which will be starting up Uh, we're just getting venues and speakers confirmed for that Fantastic. That's great to hear. It's, it's wonderful that the dynamics community in Scotland is going from strength to strength. So once again, thanks very much for your contribution there. Thanks, Mark. I really appreciate you coming on the show. No problem. Thanks very much. Our mission is to have every Microsoft Dynamics 365 project succeed using Scrum. If you'd like to learn more about Scrum and become a certified professional Scrum master, visit crm.audio slash scrumdynamics to get discounted access to the introduction to Scrum for Microsoft Dynamics 365 course. The course features videos, worksheets, quizzes, and a practice assessment for the professional Scrum master certification exam. It covers the theory of Scrum, its events, roles, and deliverables, as well as lessons learned through Scrum for Dynamics CRM case study projects. CRM Audio podcast listeners can get discounted access by visiting crm.audio slash scrumdynamics. Dynamics.